Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. You have your Bibles, let's open them up to the Gospel according to John. We're continuing our series in the Gospel according to John from chapter 10. If you open your Bibles to chapter 10, we'll be reading from verses 22 through 31. Gospel according to John, chapter 10, from verse 22 through 31. I'll be reading from the ESV translation of the Bible. At that time, The feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because... You are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the word of the Lord. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Well, beloved, as a church, the Lord has allowed for us to, over the last four years, to work our way through the Old Testament. In fact, we're only about a chapter away from completing the, the first six books of the, of the Bible. What a privilege, what a privilege it's been. We've worked our way through until until now, until Joshua chapter chapter twenty three, and predominantly, what has taken the the text of Scripture is the story of Abraham. More so, the story of Abraham Abraham's seed, the the covenant, the old covenant that the Lord God had had made with with Abraham. But we didn't have to read very long throughout the Old Testament. In fact, still early in the book of Genesis, to realize and to recognize. That if God's promises are to be fulfilled, they would be required to be fulfilled despite the efforts of man. How many men in the Old Testament, can we put our hands up and say, how many men in the Old Testament actually met the requirements of God? How many men in the Old Testament were actually men of, 
of the standard of faith that God requires. God made a covenant with Abraham and we were able to, to begin, we were able to witness the humble beginnings of the covenant he did make with Abraham, this father who, who was promised to be a father of a great nations. In fact, all the nations of the world will be blessed through him. Now, the promise to start off with was a difficult one for him to swallow because not only did God take him out of the earth of the Chaldeans, he was an idol-worshipping individual. Remove yourself from the family and go to a land that I will point you to, the Lord said. But the problem is, if he was going to be a father of a great nation, he will be required to have children. The problem at that point in time is that Sarah was barren. He knew it, and he was no spring chicken either. So there's an impossibility, but that's okay, because God can work with the impossible. In fact, he, he does that best. He works with the impossible but what did Abraham do? Soon after God tells him that he's going to bless his seed, Abraham gives his wife, Sarah, or Sarai, to the Pharaoh of Egypt to do as he pleases. You remember that back in Genesis chapter 12? Abraham, what are you thinking? You need your wife. If God's going to bless you and bless your loins from the, from your loins, it'd be from, from Sarah that there will be a, a seed and from God will bless that seed and the, 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 the descendants will be blessed and they will, they will have a land and there'll be a people and there'll be a covenant people for the Lord. Abraham, what are you thinking? Are you trying to derail the plan of God? You might say, but wait a second, brother, that was Genesis chapter 12. We're not told Abraham had faith that was counted to him as righteousness until Genesis chapter 15. Okay. Abraham, what were you thinking in Genesis chapter 19 when you gave your wife Sarai to King Abimelech, the king of Gerar, to do the same? Abraham, what were you thinking? You trying to derail the plan of God? If God was purely and solely depending upon men to do their part, beloved who would do their part? If God was depending on men to do their part in order for his promises to be fulfilled, his promises would not be fulfilled because men, as we heard earlier, are indeed failures. Look at the family of Abraham. Look at Jacob and Esau and the strife that took place between them. Look at the, look at the, the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel and the rift that happened between them. The character of those boys. What did they try to do to Joseph? They sold him out and told his father that he's dead. Just as well that God is able to use what they meant for evil for good. God's hand was in that. Even in their own sinfulness, God was sovereign over it all. And just as well because Joseph in Egypt meant salvation for the world. How could the world have survived that famine had it not been of Joseph in Egypt? But more so, more importantly, the preservation of the people of Israel because God had made a covenant with Abraham and the people would need to be preserved. And so we, we've seen how, how the people or Abraham's Abraham's family then are taken into Egypt, right? They go into Egypt. Where else were they going to go? There's food nowhere else than the land. And so they go into the Egypt and they prosper for a while, but then it wasn't long before 
that prospering and that joy turned into grief and oppression because now they've become slaves to the Egyptian for centuries. And God hears their cry. And God hears the cry and he, and he decides to rescue them because of the promise he made to Abraham and to, to Isaac and to Jacob, not because of their own faithfulness. Because it's not in this chapter, in Joshua chapter 23, but the next, in fact, that, the, that Joshua tells us that these people, their fathers, were worshipping the pagan, idolatrous gods of the Egyptians when they're over the other side. That's what he said. Now, it wasn't because of their faithfulness. It wasn't because they were true, faithful followers of Yahweh. It's because Yahweh said, I have made a promise and I will keep my promise despite the unfaithfulness of, of men. 40 years in the wilderness. Why? Because of their mumbling and their grumbling and the amount of times that the people had broken faith with God. Their bodies spread across the desert wastelands. But they didn't perish in totality. Everyone over the age of 20 perished in the wilderness. But then we see the census that began and the census just before they come into the land of inheritance. And it's almost the same. God still made them flourish even in their sin. How did they survive? How did they eat? How did they drink? What? How did they have roof over their heads? How is it that their clothing didn't wear out? God is a God who keeps his promises. And then they cross over. They cross over the Jordan. Finally, the time has come. They're on the western side of the Jordan, the land of Canaan, the land that the Lord God had promised them. Finally, the worst is behind them. Not exactly. This is the land of giants. How are they going to conquer those giants? You see, the Lord is with them. And then we heard today, even just today, we hear the words, and now, from verse 14, and now I am about to go the way of all the earth. Remember, that's Joshua speaking. He's old and frail. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word of the not one word has failed them. All the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you all have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. Oh, how many times, if it were up to men, how many times would that plan of God for salvation being derailed if it was purely a product of the faithfulness of men? Yet now they stand on the other side of the Jordan, on the inheritance, all the tribes have received the inheritance that the Lord God had promised them and not a single one of the good promises of God has fallen to the ground. And how can we attribute that? Do we attribute that to, to men and their righteousness or to the goodness and the righteousness and the sovereign decree of God in bringing about all that he has promised? If only. If only. You know, hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Like now they, they're on the land and they're looking back and they're, they're realizing, wait a minute, all the promises of God have been fulfilled. Joshua has actually said that to the people. Here in Joshua chapter 23. That now they can see and look back and say, we can see the promises and we see the history and yet here we are. God's promises are fulfilled. What a wonderful thing. If only God had given them foresight. 
Rather, rather looking back and recognizing those promises of now fulfilled, if God had only given them foresight, enable back then, if they were only able back then to see, hey, this is going to be your future. You're going to be in the land. You're going to inherit it. All the tribes will have their allotment and you are going to fully and finally reside in the land that flows with milk and honey, the very land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If only, if only God had given them that foresight. How much pain, needless pain, would have not been required for them to endure. How much tribulation, how much hurt, how much anxiety, how much... Fear would they not have needed to endure if they only could see themselves now from back then? If only they had that foresight. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1. It's not that they lacked foresight. It's that they lacked faith. It's not that they were required to see from back then into the future and see their future descendants occupying the land and therefore going, okay, we see it, we're okay no matter where we are. In the, the course of history, God will fulfill his promises. He's shown us that, so we're okay to play our part. It's not that they needed to look forward. It's that they needed to trust in God and in his word. The fact of the matter is God had given them a promise. I want you to think about that for a moment. The God of the universe, the one who created all things, the one who is before all things, the all-powerful God of the universe, the all-knowing God of the universe, is pleased to open his mouth and speak. Beloved, this is the God who is free in himself to do as he pleases, when he pleases, and is bound by no one. But the moment he opens his mouth and makes a promise, he binds himself to keep that promise. He's a covenant-keeping God. And the moment he opens his mouth and covenants and makes a promise, he binds himself to keep that promise irrespective of the efforts of men. Why? Because that's who he is. He's God. And he's God who keeps all of his promises. He gave them his word. He made a promise. It's as good as done. The moment he opens his mouth, beloved, it's as good as done. Heavens and the earth will all pass away before a single word of the word of God will fall to the ground. We have his word. They had his word. We have his word. And it's not a matter of if it will be filled, but when it will be fulfilled. The question is, have we apprehended his word by faith? Have we apprehended his promises by faith? And therefore, are we walking our, our lives evidence that not only we've apprehended his word, 
but we truly trust and believe in his word. Our, 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 our lives are a reflection that we truly believe upon the word of God. Are we resting in his promises? Do we find peace in the promises of the word of our Lord? Or are we living our lives in anxiety and in stress and in fear, trying to do things in our own strength? Remember, beloved, that the promises of God, not one has ever, will ever fall to the ground. Not a single word. There's assurance in that. There's rest in that reality. And that assurance, beloved, is solely clearly seen in the text here before us in John chapter 10. Maybe it's one of the clearest passages in the New Testament that speaks to the eternal security, the eternal keeping of the saints. A text that saints have derived so much rest and comfort from in the ages. The question is, God has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. Do we believe the words he has spoken? Have we apprehend, apprehended the words he has spoken? And now do we live according to those words? Let's, let, let's begin from where we left off last week. From verse 27, although I'll begin the exposition from verse 28. 27 for context. <clears throat> my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. I suspect if they did a survey among Christians who believe in the biblical doctrine of the eternal security of those who belong to Jesus Christ. I suspect if you did a survey to many Christians and asked them the question, how do you support that belief? How do you support the belief of what you would call eternal security in Christ? How do you defend that belief? I suspect many, if not every one of them, would have the text that is before us in their arsenal. I think with the smiles I'm getting that many of you do too. It's a text that is known by the Christians throughout the ages. It's one of the clearest that speaks to the eternal security of the sheep of God who have walked into the door, the only door that is Christ, and now part of the sheepfold of God and are being preserved by, by God until, until when? Until the very end. But I also suspect that when they do appeal to these, this text that is before us, that the, the passage that takes the primacy is probably what is in the latter part of chapter, or verse 28 and the early part of verse 29. You know, the part that is before us, it speaks about we are nestled in the hands of Christ and we are nestled in the hands of the Father and no one can snatch us out of the hands of Jesus our Lord and no one can snatch us out of the hands of the Father. Yes and amen. And in a few moments we will unpack the reality of this beautiful truth. But let me, let me submit to you this evening that even in those words, there is nothing in these words or no realities or no truths that Jesus hasn't already portrayed. 
that He hasn't already spoken, that He hasn't already proclaimed through His Word, even if we are narrowing what He said to the Gospel according, according to John. Why even, why even the first words of verse 28, He speaks the same truth, doesn't He? When He says, I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life. Do those words ring in your ears? If they do, the reason is because you've heard them over and over again. We've been working our way through the gospel according to John for years now. How many times have you heard Jesus speak those words? I give my people. I give my sheep. I give them eternal life. Chapter 3, verse 15. Whoever believes in him, that is Christ, may have eternal life. Same chapter, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Or when Jesus was speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, you remember what he said to her, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into what? Eternal life. Chapter 5, verse 39, speaking to the Jews, possibly the same Jews that are before him. He says, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me. Why, Jesus? Why will they come to you that you may have life? That eternal life that you're seeking in scriptures, you need to come to me. Because I'm the giver. I'm the bestower of that life. Chapter 6, verse 27 to the Galileans. Do not work for food that perishes, but the food that endures to eternal life. But then he goes on. Which the Son of Man will give you. And in the same chapter, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Just a few examples in in only the gospel according to John. It's Christ we see here who takes his sheep from death and, and bestows upon them life, eternal life. Nothing new here. It's his message all along. Already, even in chapter 10, verse 10. Do you remember what Jesus said? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. You remember those words? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You remember when I unpacked that verse a few months back? I said to you that when the Apostle John uses that word life from the mouth of our Lord. Life, even without the adjective, eternal. Even just just when he says life on its own, it it derives a meaning of eternal life. It, It means eternal life throughout the gospel. It means eternal life. And that eternal life is is both a life that is quantitative and qualitative. Now you remember, when we were back then, I spoke to you, what is the eternal life that Jesus bestowed qualitative, and I took you to a verse in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer. You remember the verse, verse 3, where Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Right, you remember that? And from the 39 times that that word, that term in life is used in the gospel according to John, 17 of those times has the adjective eternal right so the 39 times jesus means eternal life because he, when he speaks that way in the, in the gospel according to john he speaks about a, a life that he bestows a life that he gives a eternal life but the 17 times that he uses the adjective eternal 
the emphasis really is not only the qualitative life, but also the quantitative life. In other words, the life that never ceases, the unending life. That's what, he, that's what he's emphasizing in these words. That the life he gives continues, it never dies, it's indestructible. It's eternal. It's eternal, it, it never ends, it never ceases. There's no risk of death when you have this type of life. When you have eternal life, there's no risk of death. It's, it's eternal, beloved. It's eternal. You have to do violence to the plain reading of the text that is before us to somehow suggest that the life that Jesus gives will one day flop, will one day end. It's not eternal in that sense. If he gives it to be eternal life, then it is eternal. By definition, it never comes to an end. Beloved, it's absurd, unreasonable to think that Jesus gives an eternal life and one of his sheep may possess this eternal life one day and then another day lose that eternal life. It's not eternal if he loses it, if he has it one day and then loses it the next. If it's eternal, it's eternal. It can't be broken. It can't go from life to death. It's never-ending, never-ceasing life. Even more unreasonable to think about this life somehow being eternal and, and being lost and becoming death when one thinks about what this life is that Jesus gives. You see, the life he gives is not a gift in a box. He's not giving his sheep, a, the gift of life, as though it's packaged nicely. Here you go, sheep. And the sheep have it, and they turn away, and they look back, and it's taken. That's not the life that Jesus gives. That's not what he's speaking about. Nor is it a life that is plucked out of somewhere, and then, and then packaged up, and, and given to the sheep. No, beloved. The eternal life that Jesus speaks of throughout the Gospels, throughout the Gospels, life he gives to his sheep, the life he gives those who, who he calls and rescues from the darkness and brings them into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his own kingdom and brings them into the sheepfold of God. The life he gives to his sheep is rooted in the source and in the substance of life. It's not disconnected, but it's connected to something. It's connected to a source. What is that source? Well, in fact, we see it throughout the Gospels, but the Apostle John, from the very beginning, the very first chapter of the book that carries his name, he tells us, chapter 1, verse 4, he says, in him. Who's the him? Speaking about the word, in the beginning the word became, yep. him, in him was life. Before it all began, before you see what you see, before creation, life was found in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. What does that mean? It means that the life that Jesus gives is his own life. It's a life that is rooted in himself. Jesus is giving of him, of himself. I give 
them, my sheep, eternal life. I'm giving them myself. That's what Jesus is saying. And, and, and what makes him uniquely qualified to give that life? Because he says, I give it to them. I give them. I give them. And the passages I read for you before, it's Jesus is the one who's giving that life, is that it belongs to him. It's his to give. It's his to give. Now, beloved, it may not be so clear in the English, but the original, the verb give, it's spoken in the active present indicative. Now, it's a statement of fact, yes, and it's a reality, yes, it's a present reality, absolutely. But, but a verb in the present active indicative is, is, is not only a present reality, but it's a present reality that has an ongoingness to it, a, continual, a continuous persistence, if you will. Many times these verbs, in the, in the active present indicative, they carry an ing on the end, depending on the context to make things clearer. So give becomes giving, if you know what I mean. A continuousness to the words that Jesus is speaking. In other words, beloved, the good shepherd does not give his sheep a gift of life in a box. But rather the life he gives... The eternal life that he is, is an ongoing stream of life. A stream. It's a a flowing river that finds its source in the ocean of life that is himself. That life that Jesus gives is rooted in himself. And it's a continual giving of the life of Christ to his sheep. See, Christian, Christ hasn't given you eternal life. He gives you eternal life. He connects you to the ever-flowing source and the substance of life. Himself. You see, you're not isolated. It's not a gift that is disconnected. It's a gift that is rooted in himself. Beloved, this is such an important reality that we understand. You remember the Lord's words to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 when he said, the water that I will give him becomes in him. Speaking about, you remember the context, uh, she, she was drawing up water, thought he was thirsty, but then he speaks about this water in comparison to the water I give. And he goes on to say, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Or John chapter 7, on the last day of the Feast of Booths, only months earlier, when Jesus stands before all the people with this great invitation, and then he says, whomever believes, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of, fl- of, rivers of living water. It's the life of Jesus Christ. It's the life of the Son of God that continually flows. That's the life that he gives his sheep because they are grafted and united into himself. It's an ongoing, endless flow of the life of Christ. So the Apostle Paul is able to say in 1 Corinthians 6, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. 
I give them eternal life. Beloved brothers and sisters, the source and the substance of life is Christ. Apart from Christ, there's only death. Apart from Christ, there's desert wasteland. There might be chasms all over the places and cracks all over the place, but they're bone dry, not an ounce of life. The only life is known, spiritual life is known in Christ because he's the source and the substance of that life. He's beaming with life because he is life. And how could something that is so dead and so dry and peeled over and no semblance of life have that life? It's only if Christ gives him that life and connects, he excavates and finds a connection by faith so that his life flows and flows and flows and continues to flow to the life of the once dead person. Every believer is connected to Christ. Every believer has his life rooted in Jesus Christ in this way. Every, every believer I give them eternal life. They will never perish, he goes on to say. Beloved, how can his sheep, how can they perish? How can they be destroyed? How can they experience this spiritual final death? If they receive an ongoing Unbroken, unbroken flow and stream of life from the Savior. This is why Jesus says in John chapter 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do. How does the sap, how do the nutrients, how does the life find its way to the branches? <laughs> Doesn't it have to go through the vine? when you cut the branches, what happens to them? They die. The life is Christ, the root, the source, the substance in all his people, all his sheep. The life he gives them is rooted in himself. That's why the apostle Paul says your life is hidden with Christ. It is in God. Your life is hid with Christ in God. These realities are incredible. Like we can spend so much time just meditating upon that truth and it will break you down. It is so incredible. It is so incredible. This union we have with Christ that, 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 that is a union with the, with the, with the Godhead. The eternal God has drawn sinful, wicked people unto himself in this way. Who's deserving of this beloved? Since they will not perish. And he says it with such confidence, as he said all his other statements in John chapter 10. How does he say that? How can he be so confident that they will not perish? Because he knows. Because he knows that the life that they enjoy, they didn't merit it. The sheep didn't earn it. The sheep didn't somehow extract that life. It was given to them by the Savior. And so the life of the sheep doesn't depend inherently on who the sheep are, but rather the source of life that is flowing through them. And Jesus is able to say they will never perish because that life, the source and the substance, the fountainhead, the ocean of life that is Christ, will never, ever 
ever run dry. Ever run dry. And so he's able to say, they will never, ever, ever, ever perish. If the life of the sheep is rooted in the life of Christ, then, beloved, I can stand upon the word of God and say this with utmost certainty. Christian, those of you who have come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, those of you who have been called by Him, rescued by Him, brought into His sheepfold, sins forgiven, and the life that Christ speaks of, of the eternal life is now bestowed upon you. And I can say with the utmost confidence is that your life now is just as secure as the life of of God itself. A bold statement. But remember, the God who makes promises is a God who keeps promises. He's the God who opens his mouth and gives his word, and he's just told us they will never perish. And the reason why they'll never perish is because that life he gives is rooted in himself, the one who is life. I am the bread of life. And therefore, the only way, Christian, the only way you can lose this life, this eternal life, the only way would be for the source to dry up. And who would even imagine that the source that is the triune God would ever dry up? It's an impossibility. Impossible. It's an impossibility. Those that Christ gives life to will have eternal life for all eternity. And those whose lives are hid with Christ in God are eternally secure in Christ Jesus. Why? Because their life is rooted in Christ. That's why. And beloved, this is why one of my absolute favorite verses, and we'll get there, Lord willing, in John chapter 14, verse 19, Jesus says, Because I live, you also will live. Do you see that? Because I live, you also will live. As long as I live, you will live. Because your life is hid with Christ in God. When does the believer enjoy this eternal life? When does the sheep begin to enjoy this eternal life? You know the answer. It's upon conversion, isn't it? Because if you took notice, whenever we read in the, in the Gospel according to John in particular, because eternal life is, 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 is found more in the Gospel of John than it is in the other Gospels. But when Jesus speaks about the life that he gives, when he speaks, do you realize the tense he gives? Listen, I'll give you... I'll give you a couple of examples. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has present tense, eternal life. Is it, is it eternal life that we need to wait for one day? Is it when we die and fold over, then we wake up and we have eternal life because to be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord? Is that the time that, that eternal life begins? No, there is a consummation. There is benefits of, of the consummation, the, the finality of things. But the eternal life that Jesus speaks of is right now just as secure for the believer as it is for any saint in heaven. Right now. 
At the point of belief, at the point of Jesus forgiving their sins and uniting them to himself, at the point of conversion, the eternal life begins. Even more clear in John chapter 5, verse 24, when our Savior says these words, Truly, truly, emphatic statement, I say to you, whoever hears my word, believes him who sent me has eternal life. Does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Has eternal life, present tense, has passed. He's come out of the darkness, come out of death, and now is in the light. He's pretty emphatic, isn't he? I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Now, that word perish is the same word as translated in, uh, in verse 10 as destroy. You remember the thief comes to steal and to kill and to, and to destroy. And if you remember when we unpacked and meditated upon that verse a few months ago, I said to you that when that word kill is used, it, it mainly is speaking about the, the physical sense of killing, that is the body. But when the word that is translated destroy back then or here, perish, same word, it speaks of the eternality, the soul, the spiritual, the immaterial part of the part of part of the man that is being that is being destroyed. And if you remember, I back down, I took you to Matthew chapter ten, verse twenty-eight, speaking about not fearing the one who can kill the body. You remember that, but the one who can kill the body, and then after that, cast the soul, destroy the soul in in hell. Jesus is speaking about the material part here as well. When he uses this this word, he's speaking about the. The immaturity, the, the soul, speaking about the destruction of the, the soul, they will never, their soul will never be destroyed. Their spiritual life will never come to an end. It will never end. Now you might say, but wait a minute, this, like, how does that all work? What about the, the intermediate state and, and so forth? Yes, look, what happens when we die? If I die this evening, you'll bury my body and you go there into the funeral place and you'll, and you'll find in, in a month my body's still going to be there six feet under. In a year, it'll still be there unless I have something valuable and someone wants to take it. But you'll find that my body remains there, but my soul, my spirit will be with the Lord. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. My eternal life continues even without my body. Now, I will long for the resurrection. And in the consummation, I will be given a new, glorious body to enjoy all the eternity with Christ in physically also. But, but Jesus is not speaking physical. He's speaking more immaterial, speaking about, about the soul. And, and it'll help us understand this, or the text that sheds a little bit of light to what I'm saying is in the next chapter, in chapter 11. You might remember the text. The chapter 11 speaks about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus comes and speaks to the sisters, in particular Martha, before he raises him back from the dead. And he says these words. He says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So far, okay, we get it, right? Die, yeah, okay. Then he goes on to say, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. On, on, on the one hand, he says that you will die, but you will live. On the other hand, he says you shall never die. Okay, what's Jesus saying? Jesus is speaking that, yes, you will die in the physical sense, but you will not die in the, in the spiritual sense. So the life that Jesus speaks of, the, the life, the eternal life that he gives to the sheep, the fact that they will never perish, he's not speaking about us Christians will not die in, on this in, in these bodies, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying we will not die eternally. 
that our souls will not perish as though we are unredeemed. That the eternal life he gives us, the salvation he gives us, will never be, will never be taken away from us. Reminds you of Romans chapter 8, doesn't it? What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Isn't that a glorious passage? Nothing. And by his words to Martha, he's saying even with Lazarus, even death in the body won't separate you from the eternal life I give. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the life that he gives and I want you to see that the Lord is very emphatic in his words. And this is why we're sort of taking our time here. And I'm, I'm doing a little bit more of the, of the grammar that I, that I normally do. And it's because it's important that we see, I see that in the words of our Lord, he's making an effort to make sure that the sheep, that these people understand what he's saying. Because the words that he's saying, the promises that he's giving, really do, beloved, give rest and assurance to the soul of the believer. He's very emphatic in his words. I mean, we might, might not see it so much in the English, but, but the way the words that our Lord uses are what call, are called the, the double negative. They're, they're, they're the strongest way in the original language to negate or to rule out what is deemed to be a possibility. We, we don't actually see it in the English because it makes for really bad grammar and you can understand why. It would read something like, I give them eternal life and they will never not perish. Or they will never not cannot perish. That's bad grammar. You can understand why the translators haven't put it in here. But that's what Jesus is saying. There's a double negative there. He's saying they will not not. They will never not. They will never ever, you can say, perish. It's actually the strongest way to negate something in the, in the original languages. There's no stronger way to say, this will never happen. And Jesus is using that here to say that my sheep will be given eternal life. I give them eternal life. My life continues to flow. And they will never, not ever, perish. To add to that, and again, I apologize for the grammar, but I have to say it because it's just so beautiful. He uses, in the Greek, there's moods. He uses the subjunctive mood here. The subjunctive mood doesn't only speak to a, a, a certainty or a statement of fact. With certainty denying the action from ever happening. That is, the action of, or the, the, the reality of the sheep perishing. That that's not going to happen. That the sheep will not perish. But when the subjunctive mood is used... It's beyond just a statement of fact. It actually encompasses not only the reality and the statement that Jesus is making, but also the potentiality. It also takes in the possibilities. It takes in the, the hypothetical scenarios, the what-ifs. You know the what-ifs? What if? In other words, what Jesus is saying is this. You can throw all the hypothetical scenarios at this truth. Throw all of them as you please, but it will not change. My sheep will not perish. You know, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was thinking it through, and I came across this beautiful grammar, and my mind actually went back to when I was younger, many, many years ago. And I actually went back, and it's an example I want to give you, but it's a fairly silly example, but I think, and you might, you should be able to reality. Re, re, Sorry, my words aren't coming out today. 
you should be able to relate to the essence of what I'm saying. Maybe not so much the details, maybe, I don't know, but the essence, I hope, will be made clear. It's like the schoolyard antics. It's when you're in the schoolyard with other kids, right, growing up. And, and there's always, when a group of kids get together, every now and then they want to push one or two of those children to see how far they can go. They want to determine their breaking point. I hope you understand what I'm saying. So, so they'll begin to ask questions like, what if? The what if questions, I would call them. So I'll give you the example. Like, so Bernie, you, you're a Christian, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. Okay. So that means you don't steal and you don't lie and you don't swear and you don't... So, well, you know, I, no, I, I don't. Okay. Okay. What if... What if someone said you have to lie or you get fined $20? Would you lie then? Well, no, I mean, $20 is a lot of money, but no. What if you get fined $50? Now, $50 was a lot of money back then, probably a deposit on the home. No, not quite. But it was a lot of money. I didn't have it, so it didn't matter. No, I won't, I won't lie. What if $1,000 going background? What about a million? I don't have a million. Why are we engaging these stupid what if? Hypothetical scenarios, and then they'll convert to something like, what if they threw you in prison unless you lie? What if they threw your mum in prison unless you lie? Okay, okay, you've reached my breaking point. Let's just... What's Jesus saying? You see, Jesus is saying you can throw all the hypothetical scenarios you can think of. Silly, stupid, logical, ir- ir- irrational. I don't care what you throw at my sheep. I don't care how many what-ifs you throw at my sheep. No matter how outlandish and silly and stupid they are, bring them on. They will not perish because their life is rooted in me. Statement is final. They will never, not ever, they cannot perish. Really, really horrible grammar. I'm sorry, but it makes balm for the soul. The grammar is horrible in the English, not in the Greek. It's beautiful in the Greek. But brothers and sisters, if we aren't able... We're unable to derive rest from those words, from those promises where Jesus says, no matter, no matter what, they're not going to perish. I've given them eternal life. Life is eternal. It doesn't end. It will not cease. It is unending. It will not become death. And they will not perish. No matter how many hypotheticals, no matter how many what-ifs you throw at them, they will remain in me. What about... Sorry, I've lost my point. What about the enemy? What about the powers of darkness? What about the demons? What about those that Jesus spoke about before, those who come to steal, kill, and destroy? What about, what about them? The sheep are pretty simple animals. We've spoken about this earlier. They're easily misled. In fact, that's what they do best. They get lost. They get themselves in much trouble Surely in the hands of evil men, surely in the hands of Satan, the father of lies, the deceiver, surely they'll be deceived. Surely he can manipulate them to once and for all to deny the faith and to walk away from Christ and bring upon themselves death. What about the enemy? That's where they go wrong. 
It's because, beloved brothers and sisters, it's not that the sheep are strong. It's not that they remain by their own efforts, by their own strength. It's not that they remain because they can flex their muscles. It's not that at all. It's because of who their shepherd is. And the moment they are received into the sheepfold of God, the moment they are saved, the moment they experience the conversion that comes by grace through faith in this good shepherd, the security upon their soul, the protection upon their soul, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it makes Fort Knox look like a cardboard box. Why? Because of what Jesus says next. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them. No one will pluck them. It's the same word that is used in verse 12, but the context there is speaking about the hireling, not the shepherd, but the hireling, the guy who's hired to look after the shepherds. And Jesus says that under his care, he cares nothing for the sheep. He loves not the sheep. But under his care, the wolf will come and snatch and pluck the sheep. That's the context. But Jesus uses that word here and says that's not a possibility because the hireling doesn't love, doesn't care for the sheep. He doesn't own the sheep. These are mine. These are the sheep that the Father has given me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. They're the ones that that He has given me and, and the Father loves me and I love the Father and I have paid for these sheep with my blood. They're in my hand. And no one's going to snatch them away. Not a single person, not a single one, not a single power is going to snatch them away. Remember John chapter 6? Let me refresh your memory. In John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking to the Galileans and he says these wonderful words that speak to the same message. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Father has commanded the Son to do something. What is it? He says, and this is the will of the Father. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day. The Father has sent Jesus the work. With a command. I use that word with a command because Jesus uses that word in John chapter 12. The Father has commanded me. And that command is that he would be an absolute perfect Savior, losing not even one of the sheep, not even one of the souls that the Father had given him from before eternity past. Those who were being united in Christ, chosen and predestined in love, that he would lose none of them. And he's a perfect Savior. That's the will of the Father. If he fails on even one of those sheep, you know what? It makes him a failure. He can either save them all perfectly and obey the will of the Father, or he can save none. Because he'll break the Father's command. The Father sent him with a command that you lose none. Can you imagine that? That you lose none. Save them all, that you lose none. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ is one in purpose and one in desire and one in will with the Father. Of course, he will save them all because he is a perfect Savior. I will lose none, he says. They may wander, but I'll bring them back. They may fall, but I'll restore them. 
My sheep may doubt, but I'll strengthen their faith. The very faith that I've given them. The faith that will guard them until I come back. I will lead them home, is what Jesus is saying. Every last one. The enemy plans and he schemes and he, he contrives. And he is formidable. In fact, the enemy is stronger than the sheep. But he's not stronger than their shepherd. I have him in my grip, Jesus says. No one can break my grip. Like, have you ever thought about those words? He's Jesus standing before the Jews. He's a man as far as they're concerned, right? A mere man. And he's saying that my sheep, and they know what he's speaking about. He's speaking about the sheep that Ezekiel chapter 34 spoke about. And that is the, the countless people of God through the generations. And Jesus says, oh, I've got them in my hand. Millions of people. Millions of God's people. And Jesus is saying before these men, I have them in my hand and no one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can break my grip. Who speaks like that? Who speaks like that? God in flesh. This is the omnipotent hand of God himself. Don't let the words that come next in verse 29 make you think any less of Christ. When he says that my father, who is greater than all, they are in his hand, as though to say that they need to be in his hand, otherwise they'll come out of my hand. That's not what Jesus is saying, and we'll get to that in a moment. But by Jesus saying these words, he's saying my hand is omnipotent, all-powerful. No one can go through it. They're in my grip, and no one can break my grip. They're mine, and they're preserved by me, and I'm going to make sure they're going to be preserved by me. No power, no principality, no person, nothing can break my grip. They're safe, and they're secure. Who's stronger than him? No one, he says, beloved. No one. Often, often when we think about being nestled in, the, in Christ's hand, we're thinking thieves and the robbers and the devil and Satan and all these, all these enemies. And he says, if, if, if they've come in, they'll remain in. But do you know what I find solace in as well? That, that no one can take them from my hand. In other words, that, that they, no one is going to be able to, to break my grip. It means from the outside or the inside. Let's face it. If I could lose my salvation, I would. I find a tremendous amount of solace in those words. That no one gets in and no one jumps out. I preserve you till the very end. If remaining in his hand was up to me, up to my strength, you can work out, but your forearms will fail. You'll fail. But it's not up to you. The preservation of God's people is because of who he is and the omnipotent hand of Christ says, no one, no one is going to take away your eternal life. No one is going to perish who has come to me, not because of any outward influence nor any inward influence. I will preserve you. I will continue to preserve you by faith and guide you until the very end. I brought you in and I'll keep you in, is what he's saying. The triune God of the, of the universe is resolute to save every last sheep. 
United in action, united in purpose, united in will. This is why Jesus says, my father, in the next verse, my, va- my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The father who is greater than all, I said earlier, doesn't suggest that Jesus' grip is insufficient somehow. But he speaks about the unity that he has with the Father in purpose, in power. Again, speaking to his deity. That this is not just a, a Christ thing. This is a triune God effort. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, the teaching of the Holy Spirit comes out in John a little bit later in the Upper Room Discourse. But it is, it is the, the Godhead who is involved in the, in the salvation and preservation of the saints. The Father is, is united with the Son, and the Son and the Father are prote- protecting the sheep. They're, they're united in purpose, united in power. And he says, my Father is greater than all. Now, now, now that, I think that is partly for the benefit of the Jews as well, because if you remember back in chapter 8, he spoke about his Father, the Father who sent him, and they kept thinking, who's he talking about? In fact, John gives us the Apostle John gives us a bit of a narrative and says they did not understand whom he was speaking about, the Father he was speaking about. And even earlier on with the Galileans, they said, is his father Joseph and his mother Mary? I mean, when he speaks about the Father, who is he speaking about? He said, my Father, who is greater than all. Don't be mistaken. I am speaking about God, the Father. And I and the God, the Father, are partnering in this purpose to save the sheep. And together we have them in our hands. And no one can break our grip, whether it's like this, or whether it's like this, I don't know. But I know you're in the hands of the Son and in the hands of the Father. And you're well protected there, he says. He says, I and the Father. Distinct. In the original it sounds, I and the Father, we are one. So he's distinct in persons, he's making it clear that we're united together in purpose. Can you see what he's saying? Beloved, is there a possibility that those who are truly united to Christ to lose their salvation? It is an impossibility. I wish there was a stronger word than impossible, but it'll have to suffice. It is impossible. Impossible. What about, let me end with this because we're out of time. Okay. There's a lot we can say about I and the Father are one, and we'll, as we work our way through the gospel, um, as we work our way through chapter 10, uh, Jesus reiterates that truth, not quite the same way in a few verses, and I'll go back and we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit more. Um, but let me, let, me end, let me end with this. At this point, you might be asking the question in your mind, and I won't take too long. Okay, we've heard about the eternal security of the saints. How in reality that those who are truly united to Christ have been given eternal life and he continues to give the life of Christ. They are united in the the ongoing flow of the life of Christ that flows through them and the fruit that they produce is a result of the life of Christ. That's John chapter 15. No one can pluck them out of his hand. They will not perish. No one can pluck them out of his hand. No one can pluck them out of the Father's hand. This is not Fort Knox. This is a million times stronger. No one, no one can take these sheep away. No one. But what about those so-called Christians that every one of us know who for a period of time seem to be walking in the light, committed to the Lord, love the Lord, serving the Lord. I'm not talking for a week or two or a month or three. 
even years, even decades. And, and you probably have people in your mind that you're thinking about even now, people that you know. And you ask the question, if the saints, if the sheep are eternally secure in the hands of Christ, then how did they, how did they get out? You know, only in a coffee, over a coffee during the week, my wife and I were sitting and actually a handful of these Christians that we know came across the table in our conversation. Beloved, these are, these are people who weren't a Christian so-called for a week or two or a month. One was a pastor, gone through seminary, served for several years as a pastor, only to turn his back on the Lord Jesus Christ and everything he stood for. Turned his back on his wife and his two little children and pursued an illicit relationship with another woman who he is with even now. Another was a, a youth leader, spent countless hours with Bible in hand teaching from the Bible, only to turn her back upon Christ, to leave her husband of several years and to pursue a, a homosexual relationship. There are many more. I served with men overseas. When we were younger, we resided overseas in the Middle East for a few years. We ministered in the streets of the Middle East. We gave out tracts and evangelized with these men. And one in particular had a zeal that, to be honest, I was jealous for. We worshipped together. We prayed together. We evangelized together. We ministered together. We, we wept together. Only to find out years later that he has turned his back on everything that is Christ and now abiding in darkness. What gives? How do we explain that in light of what we just heard our Lord say in verses 28, 29, and 30? Well, if you think I'm going to give you a full comprehensive answer to that question this evening, I'm not able to. You're looking at a guy who's barely explained verse 28 briefly and barely touched on 29 and 30. But I will give you an answer, and it's far better than I can say. In fact, I'm going to give you an answer from the same apostle who gives an answer to that very question, and I love what he says, and I pray, beloved, that we take it to heart. The Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2 speaks to this point, and let me tell you what he says. Speaking about those who went from the congregation of believers. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain, made known, that they all are not of us. You see, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 that he, after speaking about the calamities that will come, he says that he who remains firm until the end will be saved. The ultimate evidence of a true Christian is this, endurance. They remain 
standing until the end. You know, the Apostle John could have said a lot of things in these words. He could have said, he could have appealed to, to, to many realities and truths in Scripture and spoken about their faith, spoken about their lack of, of, of true, spiritual, abiding, genuine fruit. He could have gone many ways. But I love his answer. And I'll tell you why I love his answer. Because his answer seems to me like he's taking what he heard from the mouth of his Lord because he would have been here that day in John chapter 10. He would have been with the Lord listening to every word and he was taking the words of our Lord and he's just reiterating them in another way. He's taking the word of Christ. He's, he's, he's applying the promise of Jesus Christ and saying his promise stands true. Jesus said, that if you're truly his sheep, that he gives you eternal life, that you will not perish, that you're in his hand, that you're in the Father's hand, I'm the Father of one, there's no way you can escape, there's no way you can fall away from grace in that way, there's no way you can lose your eternal life. So therefore, the men that were among us, who posed to be Christian, cannot be Christian. How do we know that? Because they did not remain. Jesus said, they will remain. The fact they did not remain means either God's word will fall to the ground or they are imposters. Which way does the Apostle John take? God's word will never fall to the ground. Uphold the promise and the word of God and make all men liars. That's his answer. We stick to his answer. It's biblical. It came from the mouth of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ himself. That's the principle. Jesus says, if they're mine, I will keep them until the end. If you see them falling away, if they fully and finally turn away, then you are to know that nothing, either you're going to claim that they break my grip, that they broke the grip of the omnipotent, powerful God of the universe, or you're going to say they never were there in the first place, like Jesus says, away from me. I never knew you. You're workers of lawlessness. Let's stand upon the promises of God. Let's take the word of God and cherish it in our hearts. Let's believe his word. Let's make God true and every man liar, so be it. Let's stand upon his word. His word brings rest and solace and comfort soul. Of course, I could have gone to those who remain in Christ will also produce evidence of, of being in Christ. And that's true fruit that flows through the life of Christ. Of course, I could have spoken about those who are in Christ will remain in him because they're guarded by faith. And that faith is the faith that he, he gives. Of course, I could have spoken. But it's not enough time in the, in the sermon for me to go down these, these channels. But beloved, you need to know that if Christ has brought you into his kingdom, if he's brought you into his fold, He's responsible to keep you there. And He will keep you there. No matter what. No matter what. Let me, let me just leave you with a couple of passages of Scripture. And I won't, I won't make commentary because I know we've gone over. Let me just, let me take you to two passages. The first one is in Jude 24, 25. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read them to you because they speak to this point. And may the Spirit of God just apply them to our hearts. There we read, No, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of the glory with great joy. 
To the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. To him who is able to keep you. And the final verse I want to leave with you before we close in the word of prayer is 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. The Apostle writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. Amen? Oh no. Oh no, we can't stop there. No, no, we can't stop there. He who calls you he says here, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and keep your spirit and soul and body blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. If he, if he stops there, then we've got to figure out how is he faithful. But he continues, he goes on to say, he, he will surely do it. How do we remain firm until the end? Your eyes. Your eyes, you fix them upon Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Your eyes, you fix them upon his word. You commune with him, you draw from him. And you follow after him. Because he's the good shepherd and he knows how to lead you home. Let's pray.